America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, business and the knowledge economy sponsored by SAGE, energizing the success of businesses and communities around the world through the imagination of our people and smart technology. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host Ron Baker, and on today's show, we'll be talking about why risk is not a four-letter word. Hey, Ron, how you doing? I'm great, Ed. How are you? Good. So, if a coin is flipped a hundred times in a row and it lands on heads each time, what is the likelihood that on the 101st flip it will come up heads? It sounds like a flawed coin. (laughs) There you go. See, you're thinking like, it's exactly what I was hoping you'd say. You're thinking like Vinny the fish. It's important. When... (laughs) The, the, the near impossibility of that would indicate that I did, and since I did not say a fair coin, which is what all of the textbooks now have to That's say, right, right, is a great indication of this thing that we're going to talk about today called risk. Now, a gambling is an example of a risk event, and it just happens to be that in gambling, the risk event has both a positive and a negative potential outcome. And that's effectively what gambling is. But risk in and of itself has this, I think, negative connotation. Wouldn't you agree? Yes. And I think that's unfortunate because oftentimes, especially in business and most especially in in a discipline that I'm uh, affiliated with, which is project management, it does not – it's not really a negative term. In fact – Risks can, in, in project management can be both positive risks and negative risk. And my, my friend Rob Johnson hates the term positive risk, as, as do a lot of people, because some people, well, isn't that just a, a, a potential benefit? Well, yes, but in project management, we call, it, we call it a positive risk. And I think that this is, this is a little bit of the misunderstanding about risk, especially in a, in a business context. Because in our everyday lives, when we hear the word risk, we think, ooh, that's, that's it. only do we see a downside. And that's not necessarily true. There's, there's, there's definitely upside potential that can happen with risk. And as we've talked about on this show, you know, we believe that entrepreneurs are risk takers, and they were among the, the, the first risk takers, and that really what what happens is that profits potentially come from taking those risks. So anyway, that's just my opening on this. Ron, I know you have some thoughts on this as well, including this notion that that risk is where profits come from. So, 
Yeah, you, the, I mean, this is one of my favorite topic, Ed, because if, if you read the writings of statisticians, actuaries, economists, and, and I um, learned from you, project managers, they all kind of have a different take on this concept of risk. And so I, I just find it absolutely fascinating because I view risk, it, it, it's a threat or it's a hope. And there's a great book on this that I just wanted to mention because it really does give the history. It's written by Peter L. Bernstein. It's one of my all-time favorite books. It's called Against the Gods, The Remarkable Story of Risk. It was published in 1996. And this guy's kind of a finance writer. He's a historian. I mean, where else would you learn? This is true. I'm not making this up, Ed, that the Earl of Sandwich invented the snack so he could avoid leaving the gaming table. <laughs> <laughs> so he could eat while he, could, he didn't want to get up, you know, from the poker or whatever they were playing back then. But, uh, and, and Bernstein says, you know, the most rev- one of the most revolutionary ideas is when man defined the boundary um, of, uh, you know, of risk. When we came up with probability theory and other risk management tools. Because until we crossed that boundary, the future was just an extrapolation of the past or it was the same as the past. And, and risk management tools allowed us to explore and venture and venture out. I mean, if it wasn't for risk management, there'd be no bridges or, you know, we'd still heat homes with fireplaces. There'd be no power grids. There'd be no polio vaccination. There'd be no airplanes. There'd be no space travel, right? Countries that tried to administer risk and uncertainty away like the old Soviet Union or Cuba or North Korea today, um, you know, look where they ended up. I mean, risk, I just, I, I, I think risk is another word for hope. And, and I know that sounds ridiculous, but I think it's true. I mean, it's where all innovation, creativity are sprung from and, and all learning. I, I agree. I mean, risk by definition is what I think creates innovation, taking a risk, trying something different than, than you have in the past. That, that, that's where we're going to, to see these innovations occur. And without the willingness to take risks, you you're you're not going to see any growth. I mean, I I have often counseled people who when they've been very risk averse in the conversation that we're having, I would say, "Well, justify why you do anything. Why don't you just cash out, take all of your money and put it in treasury bonds?" Exactly. Right? I mean, if yep. if 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 you want to earn whatever it is, you know, what is it 0.2% now? Then, then, but you don't have any risk. You don't have to worry about it. Right. Right. The interest rates, the guaranteed return. The profit is the unguaranteed return, as Gilder likes to say. You the know, unexpected that's return. The yeah. unexpected return. And that's, you know, the, the thought experiment that, you know, we get rents from land and we get wages from labor and we get interest and dividends from, from capital. Where do profits come from? I mean, it's a great way to stump an audience even of you know fortune 500 mbas cfos i've i've mm-hmm. stumped the audiences with that you'll hear different things like well you know profits come from customers or they come from value well no it comes from risk because <laughs> profit's right. not guaranteed at all e- even for the most mundane business exactly exactly and i i, I think that's what we're what well why it's probably easy for you to to stump the cfos because man they are among the most risk averse people i've ever encountered but 
uh, not well, not as risk averse as bankers. We'll talk about that later. Um, it, but I find you know that, that that's 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 the real challenge is what is the acceptable threshold of risk? And st- far too many people that I encounter are like, well, n- no, it's got to be it, it's got to be certainty. Well, then stop right right now and sell everything because yeah. if 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 you're if it's not going to be a certainty. You're, or you're never going to get to the point where it's a certainty because by definition, once it's a certainty, it's no longer a risk. <laughs> yep, yep, so true. You, you know, Ed, um, Frank Knight, an economist at the University of Chicago, in fact, I think that's where Melton Friedman met his wife in, in his class, if I remember right. But um, Frank Knight made the distinction between risk and uncertainty, and he basically said risk is something that can be measured, like a coin flip, 50%, you know, heads with a fair coin, whereas uncertainty cannot be measured. Now, other people, actuaries and even other economists disagree with this framework, but I'm just curious, in project management, is there a distinction between risk and uncertainty? Actually, the level of certainty or probability of occurrence is a is one of the properties of risk. In project management, uh, the definition of, of a risk is an uncertain event that if it occurs will have a positive or negative impact on the project. Now you can okay. extrapolate that out and just drop out the word project and just say for all things, right? So it it by definition is an uncertain event, right? And and it has then two characteristics. Every every risk has to have two components: the probability of occurrence, which is usually measured in percentage, and then also the impact if it does, and that's measured in dollars. And if it's a positive risk, it's measured in positive dollars. And if it's a negative risk, it's measured in negative dollars. So that's that's the simple thing. Then then we'll and we'll get into this a little bit later. Then there's there's actually what are called the classifications of risk, and that's where you get into this the you know that the uncertain piece of it. Right. Okay. Gotcha. Because I'm 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 going to talk about a book that uh, actually Roy Sutherland mentioned called Risk Savvy, and this guy draws a distinction between risk and uncertainty, and kind of the same way Knight did, but he even goes a little bit more granular than that, and I think it's a really useful distinction. So w- we can talk about that later. But you know, the the other interesting thing, just going back to this Bernstein book against the gods, um, he talks about Ben Franklin was the first to establish a fire insurance company in 1752. And if you think about it, marine, um, you know, insurance came about in the mid 18th century as well, you know, uh, insuring ships that, that sailed at sea. And, and so insurance and just risk management tools in general allowed us to do things, you know, to go explore the frontier, to reach out. I mean, it was really, um, it really was a remarkable invention. Mm-hmm. No, it truly is. I mean, and as you say, it's what what helped us continue to explore. I mean, a lot of the stuff that I teach from a project management perspective has its roots in the U.S. Defense Department and NASA, especially, where a lot of these principles came up. Now they do some crazy stuff with it, but uh, the the co- the conventional project management stuff, man, a lot of that goes back to the the, the NASA in the in the early, late fifties, early sixties. So. Right. But I, you know, I wanted to mention one other thing while we're on this topic of just defining risk because there are different definitions. And the other one that I think is is interesting, although I'm not as satisfied with it. You know, I just said, mentioned that in project management, it's it's probability times impact. Well, another way of looking at it is hazard times impact, mm-hmm. right? 
And let me explain the difference there. The impact is the same, right? So whatever the, re- the potential result is, right? But instead of probability, we substitute in this, this idea of hazard. And th- this can get really morbid pretty quickly. But uh, let me give you an example uh, because this this is like one of those weird things that that is makes risk of such a fascinating topic. Even in the great state of Texas, here, Ron, when Christine and I take the kids to their annual checkup at the pediatrician, we are asked the following question: Is there a handgun in the house? Does anyone right. in, in the house own a handgun? Now. First of all, I'm libertarian. I'm, I'm going to say none of your business, but let's 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 put that aside for a second. And just just explore the very fact that it, I'm being asked that question, right? But I'm not asked, do I have a pool? Right. Which is bizarre <laughs> because the probability of a kid dying in a pool accident is, and I'm not exaggerating here. It's something like a hundred times greater. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And that's and that's even for houses with handguns. You know, it's just it's that astronomically higher. But and here's where that but that substitution of hazard comes in. And I and apologize because this, this makes some people sick. But, you know, the, if the 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 thought of a kid getting shot with a gun is so much more horrible than a kid dying in a pool accident, you know, in a drowning that. We have to ask about this question. You know, we have we have to ask about the handgun. It's a dread risk, right? Like nine eleven or an airplane crash, which is you know why more people will drive right mm-hmm. than, than fly. I mean, you've got these dread risks that are that are you know very vivid in our mind. I would also say in that instance too that the pool is not a politically incorrect incorrect product. <laughs> handgun is but yeah yeah you, know. you never know you never know <laughs> but no I, yeah there, there are so many ways to look at this topic yet and i i kind of want to go through as much as we can in terms of government society individual project management um and i even want to talk about health health insurance and 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 what doctors should know about risk and again this is from the book risk savvy so i i think this will just be a um, a fascinating discovery, but in, in total, there, there's really five responses when you're confronted with risk, right? We can avoid it, which I think is a big mistake. We can try and reduce it. We can transfer it to somebody else. Like when you buy insurance, we can accept it or we can increase it. And obviously in a business context, you, you, you've got to have risk. You can't, I mean, Peter Drucker talked about the three types of risk, and, and we'll explain that too when we get back from the break. But, you know, you just can't have a business that doesn't engage in risk-taking because I think some of the biggest costs in business are not taking a risk, right? We have models that may be able to estimate the cost of taking a risk, but we don't necessarily have models of what it costs not to take risks, no, I completely agree with that statement. In fact, you know, the, the, it's it's a wonder to me that syst- systems are put in place to a- avoid action, yet inaction doesn't seem to have uh, any any downside that? consequences in an organization, except for the fact that the business ends up going out, except that the business ends up going out of business. So, 
Right, right. Well, Ed, this is fascinating. When we come back, let's let's talk about the way Drucker uh, divided three risks in the context of business. And folks, in the meantime, we'd like to remind you, you can contact Ed or myself at asktsoe at verisage.com. And please check out our full show notes at thesoulofenterprise.com. And now we want to hear from our sponsor, Leading Results. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Is your website just a brochure or is it your best salesperson? If your site is not the best lead generation tool you have, we should talk. We are leading results. We build websites and marketing programs that impact your bottom line. Using HubSpot or WordPress, we'll create a website and supporting marketing program that gets your business found, converts web visitors to leads, and provides clear tracking on what is and is not working. Learn about our team and approach to your success. Visit leadingresults.com slash TSOE to find out more. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have, but have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. All right. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here doing risk is not a four-letter word. In other words, it's not something we should shy away from. It's actually something we should move towards. Uh, and Ed, this is probably what I've learned from actuaries more than anything. When they have a discussion about risk, they actually lean in. <laughs> you know, when we talk to most professionals, lawyers or accountants about risk, they they want to walk away. They want to run away where the actuaries look at it as an enormous opportunity. You know, maybe they can turn it into a product. Maybe they can learn to or, or figure out a way to transfer the risk to their company and turn it into a product. So I just find that dichotomy fascinating. What's their saying, Ron, that you have? There's no such thing as bad risk, right? Yeah, there's one of the actuary axioms I wanted to talk about was there's no such thing as a bad risk. There's only bad premiums. And, and, and I think that's a really intelligent way to, uh, to think about it. But getting into Peter Drucker, Ed, um, he pointed out a business always saws off the limb on which it sits. <laughs> In other words, it's a perpetual kind of risk-taking machine. It's the essence of enterprise. And he says... The risk is something quite different from risk in the statistician's probability. It's the risk of the unique event, the irreversible qualitative breaking of the pattern, right? A new innovation or, or whatever. And Drucker thought that there were three types of risk 
uh, for the business enterprise, the affordable, the non-affordable, and the compulsory. So the first was the risk a business could afford to take, right? Ho-hum. If it, if it doesn't work, it's not going to be a major disaster. If it does work, it's not going to be that great either, right? Just a typical kind of ho-hum risk. The second is the unaffordable where the business couldn't afford to take that risk. In other words, you know, you're wheeling the heart hot dog cart against the red light, <laughs> right, uh, in, in heavy traffic. And, and it's, it could be catastrophic, if it doesn't happen, I, I remember the um, the story of the Boeing company when it test flew at 747 for the very first time. The CEO and a group of dignitaries were out on the tarmac, and the lady asked the CEO, what happens if this thing crashes? And the CEO looked at her and he says, Madam, I'd rather talk about nuclear war. <laughs> I mean, if, if if you think about Boeing, right? I mean, they're kind of put wheeling the hot dog cart on every plane they, they launch practically. I mean, it's an enormous risk. That's just the nature of their business. And the third type of risk that Drucker pointed out was the risks a business could not afford not to take, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you have to take some risks, and some of them are very prudent. So I, I think that's kind of an interesting way to frame it in terms of the business enterprise itself. What's fascinating about that, Ron, is the conversations that you, that I've gotten into with small business owners where the, the latter two categories that you mentioned from Drucker are, are indistinguishable from one another, right? Michael, I'm it, not getting that at all. So and be, and because of that, I think it it, it challenges the decision making, right? Because they it's it's hard for them to distinguish between that which they have to take, and that which they they are d- refuse to take, right? Because those things are so hairline from one another. They think, well, we have to do this, or there's no way we could do this. And it's really to me, it's always been just a belief system about that. I don't I don't think there's ever been analysis about it. You know, so there, there, it's it's difficult, right? Because those things are so close to one another, Ron. Right? They either they, the the business owner either feels they have to do it, or there's no way that they could do it. And to distinguish between those two types of risk is, I think, really hard. It there seems to be only a hair trigger between them. Yeah, no, you're right. It is. I mean, there's there's you know, obviously, some risks can be catastrophic, and others can be just ho hum normal risk. And and this is where judgment comes in. And this is where, in a complex world where there's a lot of different um, situations, a lot of unknowns, then, you know, risk really can't be calculated. And that's when I think you cross the line into uncertainty. You know, one of the things the author of Risk Savvy points out, the guy's name is Giganzer or something, um, Gerd uh, Gergenzer, um, he says, you know, risk can be calculated when three things are, are present, low uncertainty, few alternatives, and high amounts of data. You know, if you think about life insurance, right, mortality tables, we, we, we kind of know, you know, average life expectancy with enough population, those types of things. But when you move into a complex world with tons of different probabilities or, or different outcomes, you can't just assign probabilities to all of them and build a decision tree. He says that doesn't work. You have to rely on intuition, and that's why I think the distinction between risk being calculable and uncertainty being not is useful. I kind of like that distinction from him. 
Yeah, and uh, project managers would look at it slightly differently, and I, we're talking about the same thing, but just a, a different way of looking at it. Mm-hmm. In fact, th- this is this is one of three different classifications of risk, right? So project managers go about classifying risk different ways, and that there's one one thing called effect based classification, source based classification, but the third one is this thing called level of uncertainty. And this is the one that got Donald Rumsfeld into a lot of trouble. Do you remember that? Yes. That that, yeah, that endless loop <laughs> that would played where he, he was talking to a bunch of journalists about it. There are no knowns. There are things we know we know. And then there are unknown knowns, things we don't write. Anyway, it's hysterical. And we'll definitely put it as, up as part of the, the, the show notes. But in all honesty, and this is not to make a judgment on the esteemed former defense secretary, he, who may be crazy, I don't know. But he's not crazy because of that. It just happened to be that the way that risk is classified under those terms are a little bit weird. So let me let me take you through it and and see if it, it th- this makes sense and can relate back to what you were talking about with uh, uh Gergenzer. And that is to say that the, so th- this is the the three uncertainty levels. The the first level is called the unknown unknown, right? And that's where I always start there and that was pro- perhaps the mistake that Rumsfeld made um, is he ended up with that one instead of starting with it, right? Okay. So the unknown unknown risk means that we 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 cannot assign a probability, nor can we assign an impact, right? It also means that we we haven't even identified something as a risk, right. and this is where it gets a little bit confusing because you can because ri- risk identification. And uncertainty level are two separate things. So let me give you an example. I can identify something as a risk in a particular engagement project in a company, right? So forget forget whether it's related to project management or not. But I can identify something. I have identified this as a risk. This is a risk. But it can still be an unknown, unknown risk if I can't assign it a probability or an impact, right? Does that make sense? It does. It does. Okay. It absolutely does. Yep. So then the next level is what's called a, 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 a known unknown, right? And this is where it gets a little bit really funky because you're like, okay, now I'm getting confused. How can it be a known unknown? And all that means, a known unknown, it just means that I, I can figure out one of those two cla- uh, characteristics of risk. So I can figure out either probability or I could figure out impact, but not both. Right. Right? Gotcha. Now, fortunately, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter which one because there's no such thing as an unknown known. Thank God, because that would be very confusing. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> so, it's, so just a, a known unknown is one where we know we can figure out either the probability or the impact. And then there's finally what's called a known risk. And I, I personally think it should be called a known known. In fact, that's what Rumsfeld in the video calls it, a known known, because it makes much more sense. And yep. it just means that I, I have been able to figure out both probability and impact. I mean, to a certain degree. And, and this is where you get into the whole judgment thing. And I, and, and I often talk about this with the classes that I do. It's like, well, you know, how do we come up with these, these probability and impacts? Well, in some cases, it's, it's conjecture, right, with judgment. That's, that's where we come up with it. Yep. No, I do think that's a very useful I do think that's a very useful way to to think about it and break it out, and, and that kind of follows what Gergens are saying too. I believe a little bit for sure. Right, 
Right. And then, you know, and that's, and that's where, it, and I think it's helpful to categorize risk in those three ways uh, because if you've got a risk that's an un, unknown unknown, you can assign somebody, hey, listen, can you do some research? Maybe we can, we can elevate this to a, a known unknown or even a fully known risk if we do some more research on it, right? right. So there are, there are ways that we can then attack the problem. And just, by the way, in the interest of, of completeness here, the, the, the two other classifications of risk that project managers use, source-based classification is simply just where did we, where did we uncover this risk, right? What's the source of it? And this can be a lot of different things. This could be the, you know, the person who identified it. This could be what is it related to. So there's lots of different ways that you can, you can cut a source classification. We just want to know right. where did it come from. And then the last one is the effect classification. And then I'm going to have to refer people back to our conversation about scope where we talked about the triangle of truth. But the effect classification simply asks which of the four elements of the triangle recall that there are that's it's scope cost time and quality which which of those four elements does this risk affect the most right i remember talking to actuaries about this and and when they don't have a lot of data like your source there are other sources where they can where they can look right they can get expert opinion or even other things to help them come up with probabilities or likelihoods mm-hmm. no exactly they're, they're, so that it's some pretty interesting stuff but uh, just one more example kind of this kind of goes back to the the profit idea that risks originate from profit if, if you look at institutions that are designed to avoid risk and my favorite example again keeping it in a business context are labor unions Right now, the average labor union member makes a higher than average wage than his peers in in similar industries. Something Milton Friedman has proved. Right, they do this, of course, by restricting the supply of labor. But have you ever met a wealthy labor union member? This is the trade-off you're making when you know you want a comfortable floor above you, but you don't want the risk. And that's right. one way that I illustrate that. Well, I, you know, I think that that's probably true of lots of different things. I guess unionized or not, te- you know, teachers, I think, fall under that category. Oh, right? absolutely. Where, and they tend to right. be union. <laughs> tend tend yes. to be. Yeah. Right. But, but anything where you have, where you have that, tr- that trade-off for certainty, you're not going to see really wealthy people in, yep. in that particular area because that's the trade-off. Is like we know we, 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 we were opting for an even level playing field. Right. No, exactly right. So, Ed, when we come back from this break, I, I kind of want to get into um, the Risk Savvy book and, and, and t- uh, discuss some very interesting things in there because I just think it's fascinating the way this guy discusses risk and frames it. Um, but, folks, in the meantime, we'd like to remind you, we know many of you listen on demand. We'd love it if you went to iTunes and rated the show. That really helps. And you can follow us. Uh, you can follow the show on Twitter at ha- at, at ask tsoe and of course you can email ed or myself at ask tsoe at verisage.com and now we want to hear from our sponsor azamba we're making it easier to listen to the voice america talk radio network live wherever you go on iphone blackberry or android download it from the apple itunes app store blackberry app world or android market 
We believe great companies can become even greater by challenging the status quo within their companies. The latest challenge to your status quo? The way people buy has changed. Buyers now control the majority of the front end of the sales process. Sellers must learn to facilitate a buying process, not conduct a sales process. Social buying signals are an opportunity for sales. Learn more. Go to quantacrm.com slash ABC to request a copy of the white paper, Always Be Closing, a guide to the new art of social selling. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we are talking risk here on The Soul of Enterprise, and that is that risk is not a four-letter word. Actually, it is a four-letter word, but what we mean by that is that risk is not something that you should be frightened of or not use. In fact, it's probably one of the best tools that's been developed in modern business and even culturally to assist us in decision-making. I always think that decision-making in, in organizations is, is one of the most fascinating topics, and risk, risk management and understanding a risk analysis is one of those ways that organizations, I think, can make longer term anyway some better de- better decisions. So, Ron, you've you've tintillated me a little bit with this Gergenzer book, which I haven't read. So, bring me up to speed a little bit on some of his thinking behind what he he feels about risk. Okay, Gray, and I did get this book from Roy Sutherland, who said it was an absolute sleeper and deserves a lot more publicity than it's getting. He called it like one of the best business books of 2014, and after I read it, I said he was absolutely dead right. It really is a fascinating book. Gergenzer is a German, uh, really interesting guy. He thinks we have a risk illiterate society, Ed. He says, you know, being able to read and write is not going to overcome being able to look at probabilities and understand risk in a way that will help you make better decisions. So just like you started out with the question of the coin flip, right? I'm going to give mm-hmm. you a question. When you see on the news a meteorologist say there's a 30% chance of rain today, what are they talking about? <laughs> yeah. Is, that's let, a- let, me get, let me give you a little context. I It's a completely unfair question. Are they talking about it's going to rain 30% of the the time of that day, so 30% times 24 hours? Are they talking about it's going to rain 30% in the region? So if you were to look at like the square mileage or something of the region, or do they mean 30% of meteorologists think it's going to rain today? (laughs) Um, my, My gut would say that it's the latter, but that's probably wrong. Yeah, it's it's 
when that statement is made, it's it's thirty percent of the days on which that announcement is made. <laughs> if that makes any sense, and it should. I mean, if you think about okay. it, it, it right? It, every time they thirty percent of the times they make that announcement, that there's a thirty percent probability it's going to rain today. It's going to rain. Um, but he well, says, but but he but, well, but let me ask you something, and maybe this he doesn't deal with this. But, but what I find funny about that whole thing is that you'll have okay, well, there's a 100 percent chance of rain on next Thursday, and then two days later, well, no, it's not going to rain on Thursday. But wait, 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 wait. <laughs> well, yeah, no, I know he didn't get into that. You're right, but I know I. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but one of the things he said, you know, he talked about 9-11 being one of these dread risks, right? These high profile events. And after that happened, his wife refused to fly. And he says, now, look, if, if, if reason conflicts with a strong emotion, don't try and argue. He says, enlist a conflicting, stronger emotion. So the way he got his wife to fly with their young children is he asked her, how many miles would you have to drive by car until the risk of dying in a nonstop flight are equal. Now that's kind of an interesting question, isn't it? Mm, yep. Right. You know how many miles it is? Oh, like a lot. No, no, no. How many miles would you have to drive until you, um, until the risk of dying, until oh, you oh, the oh, risk oh, of, dying of dying in a nonstop oh. flight. In a nonstop flight. Okay. Right. Okay. So I would say it's probably, I don't know, 250,000 miles. It's 12. 12 what? 12 miles. 12, driving, wait, wait, wait. 12 miles equals the risk of dying in a flight. Oh, okay. Now I understand. Right. All, right, all, right, all, right, all right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Got it. Okay. Yep. So yep. The, the, the thing that he talks about here is a lot of what we do in the world of risk management is the illusion of certainty, right? Just like we talk about the timesheet or the performance appraisal or whatever, right? This is the illusion of management or whatever. Um, but he talks about the difference between a negative error culture and a positive error culture. And I think this is really incredibly useful. He talks about a system can't be intelligent if it doesn't make errors. So in, in a negative error culture, you have a situation where you're afraid to admit mistakes or even make mistakes. So he says hospitals are a great example of negative error cultures. Aviation are positive error cultures because aviation just sits around and talks about every time there's a crash, right, or near miss, they dissect, they dissect it from every which way, and they admit mistakes. And he says, you know, if you have a negative air culture, this is where you get defensive decision-making. And even Roy Sutherland talked about this. And the defensive decision, Ed, is when you choose an inferior option to protect yourself in case something goes wrong. Hmm. Right? Yep. And yep. he says, if aviation had... The same culture, the negative air culture that hospitals did, there'd be two plane crashes per day. <laughs> wow. That's a very interesting, very, very interesting. Now, wh what are some of the reasons for these differences in these two uh, industries? Well, obviously, right, plane, plane crashes are highly visible. But when you mm -hmm. die under the operating table, right, the doctor's still alive. The pilot's mm -hmm. dead. <laughs> 
right? But the, right, if, right, if right, the right. doctor makes a mistake, he still lives, and chances are you're you dying on the table is not going to be you know publicized the same way. Um, but he also claims that there's two and a half million unnecessary surgeries in the USA because of this defensive medicine. Oh yeah. I would, I would, and I wouldn't be surprised if it's more than that. But and what's bizarre is that that leads then to additional deaths, probably from Absolutely. other risks. Absolutely, and and you know he says defensive decision making obviously puts procedure over performance. So he his advice to to people when when they're dealing with a doctor is always ask them what they would do if it was them or their son or their mother, which is a mm-hmm. question I really do like. But he says you know when you you, you it's indicative of of. A defensive decision making when you hear somebody say, and we've talked about this before, we need more data. Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that That's a good indication that you're in a negative error culture, right? Because he says there's two ways you can conceal a gut decision. Nobody wants to admit it's a gut decision or an intuitive decision, which he believes executives make about 50% of the time based on his research of executives. And it's pretty extensive research, by the way. The book is really well documented. Uh, He said, but there's two ways to conceal a gut decision. Um, You can produce reasons after the fact. (laughs) Or another Mm -hmm. offshoot of that is, I love this one, hire a consulting firm. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So you blame them. They made me do it. Or, um, you know, you make a defensive decision, right? You do a CYA decision, which is usually not the best solution. Um, So that's why he thinks that, you know, logic is good for known risks, but intuition is much, much better for uncertainty. And I have to admit, he builds a really, really strong case for this. And it's, it's really, it's very, very interesting. And he, he's changed my mind on, on several different topics that uh, we, can, we can start to get into. But I, I just, I love this book. It really is good. Yeah, no, pretty fascinating. And I, I think the, that... The, and I think you're right. I think he's right about the the you know fifty percent of decision making. The other the other thing that um, I believe is also true is that, that that the the we just look for the data that supports the decision too. I don't know if he mentions that, right? Yes, he so, does. You know, it's just yeah. just it's just selectively checking cherry picking the data ultimately to make a decision and only looking at the data that supports wh- which way you're 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 leaning. Right, and you know, Ed, this guy is no fan. No fan of Daniel Kahneman, his System 1, System 2 thinking. He's no fan of Dan Ariely and the whole irrational thing. Uh, mm-hmm. He's no fan of nudging either. So he's kind of slamming um, behavioral economics in this book. And again, um, you know, I, I, he's, again, he's changed my mind on some things because he's arguing that heuristics can work in a complex world. We can use shortcuts. In other words, we can satisfy Mm-hmm. And his definition of satisficing, by the way, is when you pick the first good enough solution, which is an interesting way to think about it. You know that there might be something better out there, but you know what? This is good enough. So I've right. interviewed five candidates. This guy's the best one so far, even though the, the next guy sitting out in the waiting room is even better, right? But you say, no, right. this is it. <laughs> um, and and he's, he's actually, he says that that can be a good thing. And he also talks about the idea that, you know, classifying people as risk seekers or risk adverse, he says, is, is completely misleading 
because you know you can you can be the type of person that avoids you know GMO corn, right? Right. <laughs> but be a chain smoker. So it's <laughs> it's just like everything else. We have different tolerances for risk depending on what it is. And, well, and right, and, and, and in fact, that's that that's what I was going to bring up is the whole this whole notion of risk tolerance because that's what a lot of this sounds like. And I always say that that the risk to, the risk tolerance is exactly what you just said or what he said. It's not the person; it's the situation. And I think that's people people misinterpret that. They just now could 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 I make use a heuristic and say that entrepreneurs tend to be more risk tolerant, right, or tend to be more risk seekers? Yeah, I think I can say that. Right, yep. um, but but that but it's still situation to situation, and and more. I'm going to give a very specific example of that when we come back from the break. But right now, we want to remind you that you should please visit us at thesoulofenterprise.com, where we post show notes and previews to upcoming shows, as well as lists of our live events. So if you are interested in seeing Ron or myself at a live event, please visit the Soul of Enterprise. And click on the top. There's the live events page to see we, if we're going to be in your area. And we would love for you to to stop by. And if you do stop by one of those live events, please make yourself known to us that you're a big fan of the Soul of Enterprise. And also keep those reviews on iTunes and Amazon coming. But right now, we want to hear from our sponsor and my employer, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Four new employees. A 20% increase in revenue. Being one of the 9 million women business owners in the U.S. These are your proudest numbers, your landmarks of growth and success. Sage helps you achieve business milestones with cloud and software solutions that lead to deeper financial insights. Believe in your numbers. See what Sage can do for your business. Visit believeinyournumbers.com today. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. So before the break, we were talking about risk and tolerance levels, and, and Ron mentioned that in his book, Gergenzer decides that or mentions that he doesn't think that that's a great thing to do to classify people. And I agree with him on that, Ron. I think it's it's foolish to classify a person. But I do think that you can look at it situationally as well, which is what I think you said that he, he was kind of looking at it as from that perspective. Yes. Let me absolutely. give you give an exa- example of that. I mean, 
one of the, the, the exercises that I do when talking about risk tolerance is I have everybody in the class stand up. And I ask how many of them would risk 50 cents to make a, a dollar on a, on a fair coin flip, right? And everybody usually remains standing. And then I, then I increase the amounts, but I leave it on the, on the, the 50-50 chance. I'll, I'll make it, you know, I'll say $5 to make 10, 50 to make 100, you know, uh, 500 to make 1,000 and, and work my way on up. And sure. clearly what you see is, is a group of people, it's, it, there's a bell curve, right? Some people sit down at 5 to make 10. And others remain standing, and then I'm going, you know, half a million to make a million, and they're still standing there <laughs> defiantly. Right, right, right. So that's that's how I usually I- explain this whole notion of, of risk tolerance about the particular situation, even though what didn't change was the probability. But there, curiously, there are some folks who look at one aspect over another, right? In other words, they'll look at either the impact or the probability. And the best example that I'll give you is, say, bankers. You know, when I ask this question to audiences, and you probably know the answer, but in, in, the, in, the, in the financial crisis in 2008, what was the total number in the U.S. of defaulted loans, mortgages? Do you know? It was small, wasn't it? Yes. Like incredibly, like, much, like around 6%. Yeah, I was going to say less than 10%. Yeah. Yep, around 6%. And people just don't believe you when you say that until you, until you like pull up a website and go, no. Now, it was significantly higher in some places. I will grant you that. Sure. But Florida, overall, California, yep. Yep, Nevada. In, in, but in the United States overall, it was less than 6% or about 6%. And so what this, this shows that is that, that bankers have, are extraordinarily risk-averse when it comes to probability, like if you say, you know, a penny to make two on a coin flip, they're like, no, <laughs> because they don't, they don't look at, they don't look at the impact. They only really look at that probability. And when it's not like 98 or 99% probable, they're not moving, right? right. They're not going to take that risk because it, clearly 94% of the people paying their mortgages was crisis, Right, that was crisis proportion. Yep, that's no, a great so, point. Yeah, so it's so it's it's very interesting to to see how 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 individuals judge their the circumstances, and I, I think I'm in agreement that it's really got to be focused more on the the circumstance and not necessarily the person themselves. I, I, purely classifying all people in that is is silly because I'm sure there are bankers who love to go to Vegas. You know, it's a risk is like value. It's it's completely subjective, but it's also very contextual. Some people can, you know, sleep at night without paying their rent, and other people would, you know, be worry warts about it. Right? We just have different tolerances for risk in different situations. Yep. Yep. I want to get back before we close, and we're getting near the end of the show here, Ron. But but to something that you s- talked about in the opening segment, which is what are the things that you can do with risk? And you mentioned five things: avoidance, transfers, mitigation, acceptance. Where you said it, you you said actually decrease or increase. A, right. a a project manager would just look at either of those as mitigation. Okay. 
right? Fair and enough, it, would yep. ju- it would just it would just be you know you you can mitigate a positive risk by increasing the probability of it occurring, and that's that's actually technically risk mitigation. But I see I see where you're coming from on that 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 separate conversation. But I do want to uh, bring up a point that uh, that I usually make when talking about this, and it's especially with regard to risk transference, which is shifting the impact of the risk event and ownership to a third party, or the mitigation, which is either reducing the probability or impact, right? And what I the, the point I usually make is I say to folks, hey, listen, isn't it true that your A and B customers are usually hiring you for risk mitigation, right? They understand mm-hmm. that what you're doing and what you, you can do for them is, is somewhat risky, and they believe that having you as a professional will mitigate that risk, would lower the probability of, of there being a problem. And most people shake their head. And then I say, well, it, isn't it also true that your C, D, and even F customers hire you oftentimes for risk transference? In other words, they want to blame you if something goes wrong yep. instead, right? And most of the time I'll get you know, head shakes in the affirmative as well, that they agree with that statement. And then I ask this question, what do you do from – which one would you price higher? <laughs> And everybody agrees that they would the transference without question, right. right? Right. And then I ask, well, what do you actually do? <laughs> and most of them say, well, they're the, they're the usually people that ask for the discount and we usually give it to them. It I'm to like, them. exactly. You see, the very people that you should actually be increasing your price, you're actually lowering it. This is a problem. This is a bad thing. Bad you know, idea. It's, a, it's another actuary axiom, Ed, that you, there's no model in actuarial science that prices risk by the hour. And that's why professional firms have this problem. They treat everybody by the hour and they don't look at the risk or price it separately. Mm-hmm. Exhibit A would be Enron and Arthur Anderson, <laughs> just yeah. as a recent example. But, um, well, that's, that's fantastic stuff. I, there's so much more we could do on this. We need to do another show on this topic because it's so multifaceted and I just love it. So, um, that, that would be great. But Ed, what do we have coming up for next week? Next week, we're going to be talking about taxation, Ron, because it is April 15th. That's right. We're going to do one of our economic puzzles and paradoxes show. And we're probably going to start with do corporations pay taxes? Awesome. All right. Well, I'll see you in 167 hours. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, business and the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, energizing the success of businesses and communities around the world through the imagination of our people and smart technology. Join us next week on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific Time. In the meantime, please visit us at thesoulofenterprise.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. 
The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 